0: chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, and if you're joining us for the first time, we are doing studies in the life of Christ, and we're right now looking at the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that Jesus ever preached. So we're going through the Beatitudes this morning, and we're going to look at the second and the third Beatitude, blessed are the mournful and the meek, beginning with verse 4. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, this second beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount is related to the first one, poor in spirit. The first one and, and that the first beatitude, the first beatitude, poor in spirit recognizes one sin, while the second beatitude mourns over that sin once it's recognized. The first beatitude, poor in spirit, recognizes one sin and the second one, uh, it shows repentance for it. The first beatitude affects the mind. The second one affects the emotions. I I mourn over it. The first beatitude recognizes one's sinfulness. The second one grieves over it. The first beatitude sees one's sin. The second one groans over it. So the first one recognizes our own true character and failings. While the second one results in feeling sorrow once we've recognized Our shortcomings. Now, this this beatitude is another contradiction to human thinking. In other words, mankind doesn't think of joy when he thinks of mourning. He doesn't think of joy because he mourns. But again, that's just what this second beatitude says. Blessed or happy are those who mourn. The first beatitude, that's another oxymoron because it said blessed are the poor in spirit. You see, the flesh the flesh thinks totally the opposite. All of this reminds us of what God says in Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. And as we all know, the carnal mind does not think like God's mind. Because the carnal mind, Paul said, is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, what just does the word mourn mean? Well, according to the Dictionary of New Testament Theology, the word mourn means to lament, sorrow, or sadness. It's like when a person is mourning for the dead, a loved one in particular. It is the most intense kind of mourning. When talking about the Sermon on the Mount, it means genuine mourning, like you would see often in those days displayed by the professional mourners. It is a sincere mourning. Now, what brings about this kind of mourning by the second beatitude? It's not some superficial mourning that's caused by maybe a loss of a job or a financial loss or the loss of a pet. The mourning is, is caused by sin. This mourning that it's that talking about is caused by sin. It's a godly sorrow over your own sin or the sin that we see around us in society. It's sorrow caused by a lack of righteousness. It's a spiritual type of mourning. And each beatitude is clearly a spiritual condition that's being demanded and as a result, rewarded. Paul shows us these two beatitudes in Romans seven eighteen and verse 24. He says, for I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Then in the second one, he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We read in Ezekiel 9 4, and the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men, notice, who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. The morning. Again, we hear, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence. And you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the, the righteous and therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Habakkuk 1, 2 and 4. In Psalm 38, 4 through 6, for my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. Notice again, the mourning of sin. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. Again, several verses that again uh, speak about this mourning because of the abomination of sin in, in, in the cities and in the lives of the people. Ezra, the Ezra, the priest in Ezra 10, 10 and 16, it says, who was also a scribe of exceptional character. He mourned the sin that was present in Israel in his day. We see Ezra 10, 6. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and he went into the chamber of Johanan, the son of Eliashib. And when he came there, he ate no bread. He drank no water. Here's why. Because he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. Jesus was known as a man of sorrow, Isaiah 53, 3, because of our sins. His mourning over sin is especially seen in his grieving over Jerusalem just before he was crucified. Listen to what he says in Matthew twenty-three, thirty-seven: "O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The use of the word mourn indicates the principle of this second beatitude, which is there needs to be some mourning over sin. And this beatitude, just like all the others, isn't normal to worldly thinking. Because, you see, the world is not going to mourn over their sin. I don't know about you, but when I was living in the world, I didn't mourn over my sin. I didn't didn't even see see it as sin. You see, and that's because we don't see it as sin. It's just normal behavior for us before we're born again. When I was in the world, I didn't have remorse. I didn't mourn over the sins that I committed. The world is not bothered by sin. The world loves sin. The world loves sin so much that they try to legitimize it. By making it legal. Making it more palpable, more acceptable to society and to man. So don't expect the world to mourn over their sin. So how do we go about developing an attitude that will cause us to mourn over our sin? Again, because it's so important, we need know-how. We do it the same way we develop the attitude for being poor in spirit. We get into the word of God. And we look at God and we look at his standards. And the way to experience that attitude of mourning is clearly to read the word of God, to study the word of God, to meditate on the word of God, to pray to God for the Holy Spirit to show sin in us to ourselves and then to show us the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his fullness. In all of His holiness. As the psalmist said in Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God. Search me. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxieties, my anxious thoughts. And point out anything in me, Lord, that offends you. If you allow the word of God to dwell in you richly, as Paul said in Colossians 3, 16, and get a good glimpse of God's holiness, there's no way that you will not mourn over your sin. When Isaiah had seen his sin, he couldn't help but say, Woe is me, for I am undone. Isaiah 6, 5. He did some honest to goodness mourning after he saw the Lord. What else could you do? And so will anybody who else, uh, who stands in the, in the um, um, approachable light of his holiness. Because it's in his light where everything is exposed. Everything is made known. Nothing is hidden. Plus, it's God's word that will help us to see what sin is. God's word will give us a strong awareness of conviction of sin, and this strong consciousness of conviction of sin is absolutely necessary in order to mourn over sin. If you don't see sin for what it is, you surely won't do any mourning over your sin. And this mournful spirit also has its reward. Because Jesus said, those who mourn shall be comforted. And the people who are going to be comforted are those who mourn and only them. Only those who mourn are the ones that will be comforted. A lot of people want to be saved. But a lot of people don't want to mourn over their sin. Nor do they want to abandon their sin because they like it. A lot of people want to be saved without confessing that they're sinners. And yet Paul said, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Because with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. To be comforted, you have to mourn over your sin. God is not in the habit of comforting those who don't see their sin with a sorrowful heart. Mourning and being blessed go together. And here's God's word in support of this truth. Listen to what it says here in Psalm 30, verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping or mourning may endure for a night, but joy, blessing comes in the morning. So there may be mourning through the night, but blessing comes in the morning. We read in Psalm 126, verse 5, those who sow in tears, that is those who mourn, shall reap in joy. There's the mourning with the blessing. We see in Isaiah 61, 3, joy for mourning. We see in Psalm 30, verse uh, um, 5, "But joy comes in the mourning. We just saw that. Blessing comes from the mourning. Those who sow in tears, notice, shall reap in joy. The sowing in tears is the morning. The reaping in joy is the blessing. Psalm 126, five joy for the morning. And then as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, Paul said in 2nd Corinthians six ten. So we see the evidence for the blessedness from the morning. But <clears throat> rewarding the sinner with comfort must not be confused with the condoning of sin. The only way God comforts the sinner is by cleansing him of his sin, not by overlooking his sin. And the comforting comes from the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 16, this Holy Spirit is called the comforter in the in the King James Version. And what the Holy Spirit uses to comfort us again is the word of God. You see how everything points back to the Bible The way that the Holy Spirit works, his ministry is done no other way than by the word of God. The Bible itself, the scriptures. Because you see, it's the it's in his word where we find comfort. Acts chapter nine, verse thirty one says, then the churches throughout all Judah, Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Paul said in Romans 15, 4, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through patience of comfort of the Scripture, might have hope. You see, it's a blessing to know and to be assured of God's comfort. The Holy Spirit, He's always with us. We're never left alone. He doesn't leave us alone to cry out hopelessly like an abandoned child. The Holy Spirit is there always by our side. Leading us and guiding us to minister to us the comfort of God's word. Again, that's why it's so important that you read the scripture so that you will know them. So that they will dwell in you richly. And here's why. So that the Holy Spirit can bring them back to your remembrance in time of need. Jesus said in John 14, 26. But the comforter, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Notice, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. What is it that Jesus said to the disciples? His word. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance my word to you. Here's the problem. If we don't read our Bible. If we don't know the word of God. And the word of God does not dwell in us richly. How are we going to know what Jesus said? How are we going to know his promises he's made to us? which gives us hope and gives us strength and gives us victory over our difficulties. If we don't know what Jesus said, how will the Holy Spirit bring to our remembrance what Jesus said to help us to get victory over our circumstances? You see, what we remember will only be what we put in. It's kind of like a bank deposit. You write a check for $1,000, but you've only put in 500 Well, don't expect to get out 1000 bucks. But it's the same thing with our reading. Knowing the word. See, the Holy Spirit can't bring up the scriptures to you that you haven't read and, 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 and allowed to dwell richly in your heart, in your life. They haven't become a part of you. He can't bring them up to your remembrance when you when you need them. What you put in is what you're going to get out. It's very important that we know the Word of God. Without the help of the Holy Spirit, there's no way that we can live the victorious Christian life that God wants us to live. We have to know who the Holy Spirit is, what He does, and how He does it. And the Holy Spirit is a person. He's not an it. The Holy Spirit is given two special names by Jesus. Comforter. And the spirit of truth. The Greek word translated comforter is used only by John. And it means called alongside to assist. He comes alongside to assist us. The Holy Spirit does not work instead of us or in spite of us, but in us and through us. And Jesus had said, those who mourn, they shall be comforted and this comfort that god promises jesus only comes only if i mourn over my sin only if i mourn over my sin am i going to be comforted the comforting comes after the mourning so the time of comforting depends upon when that mourning takes place in my life we have to empty ourselves of ourselves before we can be filled god will not pour into a dirty vessel so there has to be conviction before salvation. Next beatitude. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. This is such an important beatitude. And it's critical. And it's one that I think is, we, we need a lot. Meekness is the requirement for this beatitude. What exactly does it mean to be meek? Because we've heard, I, I've heard many uh, descriptions over the years. It's a word that's really hard to define in one word or even a few simple words. And it seems that it's not just one word that can totally describe everything that meekness means. The English definition of meekness means many things. For example, cowardliness. Fearfulness. Fearfulness timidity, weakness, faint-heartedness, nervousness, and several others. But in the Greek, it doesn't mean that anything like this. And it takes several words to describe what meek really means, biblically. For example, it's named as one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23, in the word gentleness. But defining it also involves other fruits of the Spirit, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, self-control. They're all part of it. So there are several descriptions and they're all correct. But they're not all the same. Strong's exhaustive concordance defines it as mild, humble. The Old Testament word in Psalm 3711 emphasizes lowliness, humility. The meaning in the Old Testament involves a lowly, pious, and modest mind that would rather accept injuries than pay them back. And as we look at this beautiful beatitude here, it's going to help us to better understand what it means. And the way it's used in the the, uh, New Testament suggests and involves patience, long suffering, humility, and submission. These qualities are woven into lowliness and to gentleness, and they can't be separated. This meekness, it's opposed, it's, op, it's opposed of the wrath of man and it involves a pliable heart and the will of God. It causes the believer to suffer patiently the insults and the injuries that he may receive from his fellow man. And it makes him ready to accept instruction or admonition from the least of the saints. And true meekness is, re, is revealed by their yieldedness to God's will. So based on the meaning of the word itself and its meaning from the way it's used here in the beatitude, it's a quality. It's a quality dealing with people. Especially those who put us down. Those who do us wrong or hurt us. Meekness towards God is first. It's having the determination, the resolve to suffer his will. Whatever that might be. I am determined, I have have decided that I am going to suffer God's will. If that's His will for me. Meekness is patience when receiving injuries. Believing that God's going to vindicate me. The meek ones are the mild, the patient, the gentle, and the tender-hearted. And the attitude involves a quiet, willing, cheerful obedience and it submits to God in all things and the will to keep from retaliating. This is a tough one. So, when you put all of these qualities together, you could say meekness is flexibility, patience, humility, gentleness, mildness, submissiveness, and graciousness. It's basically an unlimited, unconditional flexibility and submission to God. Now, meekness is not vengeful. It doesn't get even. It doesn't hit back. It's not selfish. It doesn't talk back. It doesn't fight for its right. It doesn't exalt itself. And it's not cruel and unkind. So many times Christians think they have rights. (laughs) We don't. We don't. Remember when Jesus was asked to pay taxes? Well, he didn't have to. He wasn't of the kingdom. But what he told us, like, hey, go get, a, go, go get our taxes and, 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 and pay them lest we offend them. He gave up his right for the kingdom of God. So he didn't offend the tax collector. We do more damage by standing up for our so-called rights than we do by, by, by giving them up. Again, we need to be like Christ. He never stood up for his rights. So again, just that's just one character, character, uh, uh, characteristic of meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. Meekness is not weakness or cowardly as many others see it. It's not a timid, passive temperament that accepts all kinds of sinful behavior that unsaved people try to push on us. Numbers 12, uh, uh, listen to Numbers 12, verse 3. It says, now the man Moses was very humble more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Now, if we're familiar with Moses and the Old Testament... He definitely wasn't a weakling. He wasn't timid. He wasn't passive. He wasn't unmanly. Jesus said that he himself was meek and lowly in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. And yet, remember what Jesus did sometimes? He cleaned out the temple. How? Guys, would you please, you know, move out here and take that stuff? No, he turned over the money changers tables. He chased them out of there with a whip. He drove out the sheep and the cattle. He turned, the, again, the money changers' table upside down. He scattered the money changers. Meek and mild Jesus. Even more so, he rebuked the evil religious leaders and he used some pretty strong language. Like you hypocrites, you blind guides, you fools and blind, you whitewashed sepulchers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. So there's a huge difference between weakness and timidity and passiveness and unmanliness. Once again, meekness is strength under control. Meekness is not the opposite of strength or fighting for the cause of righteousness, zeal and initiative, or standing up for the truth and righteous anger. And we have some good biblical examples to show us what meekness looks like. Moses' calling, remember? Remember? was challenged by his older brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam. And they called him out and they wanted to challenge him. But instead of doing what comes natural and fight back, Moses reacted to them with humility and submissiveness, which are the characteristics of meekness. Moses let the Lord deal with the situation handling his, uh, that was dealing with his calling and God took care of it. And you remember what happened. Miriam ended up with leprosy and shame. And Aaron begged his brother for forgiveness. And to do something about his sister's leprosy. And then we have Jonathan, King Saul's son. David's best friend. We have that example. Now, Jonathan was, was, would have been the king by tradition. The next son in line to take the throne of King Saul. But that didn't happen. Who got it? David. God took the throne away from Saul because of Saul's disobedience, and, he gave, and God gave the throne to David, not Jonathan. We don't see Jonathan throwing a fit. It rightfully belonged to him. It should have been him by all tradition and, and, and the way things ran at that time. How many times in your life do things happen that aren't right or fair? You didn't get a promotion at work that you deserved. You were next in line for it. But that person you were training for that, for, for that role, that's the one that got the job. And let me tell you, when I was working in a secular place for, for 25 years and being a, a supervisor, and I saw that all the time. And I heard all the whining and complaining about, oh, I can't, you know, I, I was, I've got seniority and I, you know, I was, I trained that person. And I'm, I mean, I, I can't help you. Sometimes it happens. You may have been the most qualified, the best person with more seniority or whatever. Yet somebody else got the job. Or you got blamed for something you didn't do and you had to pay the price. How did you react to that? How do you react as a Christian? How do you react to those things? Even though Jonathan didn't rightly get the throne, he didn't rebel against God. He didn't get mad at David. He didn't throw a tantrum. He submitted to God's choice. And Jonathan graciously graciously yielded to his demotion. That's meekness. Remember when David was leaving Jerusalem because of Absalom, David's son, who was trying to take the kingdom from his father? Remember Shimei? As as David was walking along the road, Shimei was up on a hillside. And he's throwing rocks at him and he's yelling at David and he's cursing David, you bloody rogue, you, you lying thief, you're getting what you deserve, trying to steal the kingdom. He was making all of these false accusations at David. And David just... Keeps on walking along, didn't say a word, but his soldiers couldn't handle it. Abishai said, David, let me go take off that dead dog's head. He wanted to go cut his head off. He wanted to stop that, that, that you know the cursing and lying that Abishai was making, that uh, Shimei was making. A soldier wanted permission to cut off his head. Instead, listen to what David said. He told him, leave him alone and let him curse. And here's why. Because the Lord has told him to do it. You know, if we would keep that in mind, that God is in control of everything, good or bad, whether I deserve it or not, God's in control. God could stop it any time he wants to. But if he lets it go, then it must be for a reason much greater than I can understand. David says, you know what about Abishai? Let him curse. Because, you know, the Lord told him to do it. And maybe, just maybe, the Lord will see that I am being wronged and and will bless me because of these curses today. David put the whole situation in God's hands. You see what David was doing here? He was demonstrating humble submissiveness to God's will and in a wonderful display of meekness he refused to be vengeful and retaliate what about Jesus Christ at the cross the greatest example of meekness he displayed the greatest demonstration of meekness ever seen Peter said it well in 1 Peter 2.23. He did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. Isaiah 53.7 says, He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. We are so quick to open our mouths. Why? I have a right to stand up for me. No, I don't. Jesus was perfectly submissive to God's predetermined will at Calvary and he would not retaliate. But with humility and patient endurance of his suffering, he died for us so that he might be our savior. This truly is the greatest demonstration of meekness ever displayed on the earth. We are required to display meekness. The Beatitudes are not suggestions. They're not things that that, that the Lord would like us to do. They are things that we are required to do as his children. Jesus, James said in James 1 receive meekness, the implanted word, uh, I'm sorry, receive with meekness, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. We are we are we are required to receive the word of God with meekness. In other words, we are to accept the word of God without complaint. This means we're not to argue with God's word. We don't complain about it commands or commands, but we are to be submissive and obedient to the Word of God willingly and cheerfully. Galatians 6, one, Paul said, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a fault, in a trespass, you who are spiritual, notice, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. The word is meekness in the old King James. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Now let's share a little bit about what this means. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass or fault, You who are spiritual. So you see somebody that's overtaken in a fall. You're the spiritual one. You're going to go over there and you're says here to restore that one in a spirit of gentleness. The word restore is a medical term. It's the idea of a person with a with a, let's say a dislocated joint, let's say at the shoulder. Now, it says to restore that person in meekness. The picture is, is taking that that dislocated joint and restoring it. As gently as you can without causing any further pain. So again, with gentleness, meekness, we're to restore somebody that's out of joint. In their Christian walk. And the reason is because someday the shoe might be on the other foot. Considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Gentleness, meekness. We have to deal with sin and backsliders in the church, but we have to deal with them gently. This meekness involves a good deal of humility, recognizing that we could also fall into temptation and sin if we're not careful. We are to be meek and when it comes to our calling and service for God. We are to be meek when it comes to our service and our calling to God. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. He said, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one one another in love. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel. He didn't say, please don't quarrel. It's a command. Must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. Meekness in witnessing is going to get us a lot further than belligerence or anger or losing our patience. What Paul meant there by correcting those in humility, this means there's to be no arrogance or no pride in people who serve in the church no matter what position they hold, and it involves a gracious spirit in fulfilling our calling. In the words of Hudson Taylor, and if you don't write this down, remember, I have it written in the very beginning of the New Testament. In the words of Hudson Hudson Taylor, he said, Dear friends, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. I love that. I'm just a little servant of an illustrious master. And when it comes to witnessing, it's not to be done timidly or arrogantly, but with meekness, which will include graciousness and conviction. Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So in closing, how do we become meek? There's two ways. And here it is. Nothing's new. First, the Word of God. You must read your Bible Get into God's Word and let it control your thoughts and your behavior. You will not grow and mature well in the Christian life if you don't devote yourself to God's Word. And this is what's lacking among professing Christians today. The second way to become meek is to look at your circumstances through the eyes of God. And I think David's example is great when he told Abishai, You know what? Let him curse. You know, God told him to do it. And maybe God will, you know, will, will see that I'm being wronged and he'll vindicate me. David, in that example, put everything in God's hands. And if we would look at our circumstances through God's eyes, we wouldn't get angry. Well, you know, the Lord's in control. The Lord guides my life. He knows what's going on. And he's allowed it, or he's designed it, or he's arranged it for whatever reason. I don't know, but you know what? I do know that he's God. And I do know that my welfare is is very important to him. And that he's too loving to be unkind. He's too wise to make a mistake. And he's too powerful for anybody to thwart his purposes in my life. So Lord, have at it. I'm comforted by knowing that. Because those circumstances are meant for my good. And those circumstances that might be against me, they give me a chance to grow in grace and to act in meekness. And God many times allows those things to continue in my life so I can see (laughs) I'm not very gracious. Boy, I need to work at meekness. I have work to do in my life. And and as a result of becoming meek, it says they shall inherit the earth. God will one day give the earth to the meek, which shows the righteousness of God. In the end, the earth will be given to the holy ones, not the unholy. And the wicked are going to be punished with everlasting punishment, but the righteous are going to be rewarded. The wicked time that we live in today does just the opposite. It it rewards the wicked. Because the rulers of nations are evil evil men. But you know what? This is not going to go on forever. Eternity is going to have a whole different set of standards and God is going to rule, not wicked men. So Lord Jesus, we wait for you. Father, we thank you for this great passage, Lord, and this great word, Father. And Lord, I pray that we would all, Father, learn and focus on meekness, God. I think it's one of the most difficult attributes in our life, God. Because we don't want people to get over on us. We don't want them to hurt us. We don't want them to belittle us we don't want them to to get over on us basically but so what you're my god my father and lord you know all things and all things are in your control and your ways are not our ways lord and our thoughts are not your thoughts god And you always know what's best to do in each situation, God. Help us, Lord, to leave things to you. Our life is in your hands, Father. You have a hope and a future. And you don't want to do us evil. You want to do us good. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. But maybe the Holy Spirit this morning has spoken to your heart. And you recognize, I need to be sad over my, spirit, over my sin. I need to mourn over my sin. Not take joy in it. Not take pleasure in it because it grieves God. God. Sin is what caused Christ's death on the cross. He died for our sins. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship. And if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front, and I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.